tell you stories about my failures and that. Most of you probably have stories like that, too. Here's a few examples that I found. There's this uh, Chinese menu here, Szechuan bean curd, and then you see below that chicken rude and unreasonable. You see that? I don't know what chicken rude and unreasonable tastes like, but it's on the menu, so it must be good, right? And there's this, the grass is smiling at you. Please detour. Just a little bit lost in the translation there, but I think you get the basic idea. Then there's this one. Boy, you've got to pay attention to this one. All of you listen to me. Don't disturb here. I will call police, catch you. Don't come to my bungalow house. Understand, okay? I hate all of you. You may not get the first part of it. You get that last part pretty well, don't you? I think this same guy probably put this other sign up here. Anger, keep out. <laughs> and my favorite ones here is this one's actually, sadly enough, in, the, in America. And you, you may not be able to read the bottom part. CD case holds 24 compact discs. The bottom part says, unit automatically becomes portable when carried. You think? <laughs> and this is my favorite one. This is a manicure set. <laughs> it gives a whole new meaning to the phrase tough toenails, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, I've been fascinated by words and language ever since I was a little boy. I was always a pretty good speller. In fact, I was almost eighth grade spelling champ. Almost. Guess what word I missed? Faucet. I missed faucet. I'll never forget how to spell that word now. F-A-W-C-E-T, right? <laughs> I also enjoyed my little bit of language study in school. I took a year of Latin in high school, actually. I took two and a half years of French. It may also be one reason that I enjoy the study of Scripture, determining not just the meaning of words, but the Word of God is to me a very interesting and fascinating challenge. Part of the reason I enjoy the study of words in general, and the Word of God in particular, is because it challenges my intellect. Now, I know many of you are sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, Bill sure needs his intellect challenged at least a little bit. But it's ironic considering what we're going to focus on this morning. Maybe you'll note the irony here in just a moment, because this morning we're going to look at the crux of the matter. I think crux is an interesting word. Here's a dictionary definition. It's a vital, basic, decisive, or pivotal point used in a sentence that might be like, for example, the crux of the trial was his whereabouts at the time of the murder. Crux is also, it also means a cross and something that torments by its puzzling nature, a perplexing, um, perplexing difficulty. Now, some synonyms for crux are words like essence, heart, core, gist. So you get the idea of what crux means. So it's a play on words then to say that the crux of the matter of our faith is the cross, because crux is the Latin word for cross. Now here's the irony. The cross is at the core. It is the essence of our faith as followers of Christ. It's the pivotal point in human history. It's the decisive moment in God's plan of redemption. But to the world, it's foolishness. To the world, it's foolishness. To the Greeks of Jesus' day, to the learned, to the wise, to the well-educated intellectuals, it was foolishness. 
And I think to many in our days, the message of the cross is foolishness too. If you have your Bibles this morning, you may want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading at verse 18 through verse 25. And this passage addresses this idea about the cross being foolishness. Beginning with verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So Paul's here writing to the church in Corinth, and he's not diminishing the importance of the intellect. He's saying essentially this plan, the cross, means the means through which God chose for the salvation of the world to be accomplished. This means seems like foolishness. In fact, the root word translated foolishness here is the same Greek word from which we get our English word moron. So I guess that makes us, if we believe in the saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that makes us morons. But you know what? It's not really foolishness to us. That's what this passage of Scripture tells us. To those who are perishing, it seems like foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are perishing, it's not just foolish, it's offensive. In Galatians 5, chapter 11, Paul writes about the offense of the cross. The cross is indeed offensive to people. It was offensive in Jesus' day, and I believe that the message of the cross is no less offensive today. It was offensive in Jesus' day, at least in part, because crucifixion was so barbaric. Today, our familiarity with the story of Jesus can diminish our offense at the brutality of crucifixion. The cross of Jesus sounds so familiar to our ears that we're in danger of forgetting just how dreadful how horrific, how offensive it was. We make crosses of brass as ornaments. We wear the cross as jewelry. Perhaps we should wear an emblem such as a miniature electric chair or a hangman's noose, for that's what it's a symbol of, shameful execution. Unlike the electric chair, crucifixion was one of the most refined processes of torture that twisted human justice has ever devised. It was the extreme punishment reserved for the worst kind of criminal. The victim was totally degraded in his naked, vulnerable shame. It was an offensive thing. Not only is the brutality of the cross offensive, but what the message of the cross clearly says about the human condition is offensive to many people. It was offensive in Jesus' day, and it's very much offensive now. The world doesn't want to hear... We don't want to be reminded that it's our sin that made the cross necessary. 
your sin, my sin. Not just the generic idea, the sin of the world. We can all wrap our minds around that and manage that a little easier because we can see the evil in the world around us and we think, well, that's not us. But when Romans tells us there is no one righteous, that all have sinned, that's foolishness and that's offensive. We want to hear about how good we are. We want to hear about how great we can become. We want to hear about the potential for our future. We all know people who think of life like a balanced scale. Your good deeds go on one side and your bad deeds go on the other side. Then God weighs them. And if your good deeds tip the balance, well then, of course, you get into heaven, don't you? When you try to tell people that this isn't the way that God looks at things, they're surprised, aren't they? Most people are confident that their good deeds are good enough. That's because they compare their good deeds with all the slackers that they know, and they consider all the evil that's rampant in the world, and they can't imagine that their little lies and maybe their little cheating, or even things like their infidelity or their bad attitudes could possibly add up to enough to condemn them, especially when there's murderers and rapists who are so much worse. One poll found that less than 4% of Americans think they could end up in hell. People naturally think well of themselves, and good people are offended when they are told that they are more evil than they would ever dare imagine. But when the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 explains why God is right to judge and condemn us as sinners, he says all people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. That kind of shuts us all up under the same category, doesn't it? When people hear those kinds of things, they think it's foolish or they dismiss it. Or they get angry and call us judgmental Christians. We want to hear about your best life now. We want to hear about how you can be wealthy and healthy. People are offended by the cross because it shows us a picture of ourselves that we do not want to see. There's the idea that in the message of the cross, it's implicit that not only are we sinners, but there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save ourselves. Apart from an understanding of the mercy of God, nobody wants to throw themselves on the mercy of the court. The cross is God's statement to the world that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. This is a point at which the world thinks we Christians are really foolish. Perhaps even more so in America than elsewhere. Why is that? I think we're all about independence in America. After all, we have our forefathers in America who fought and died for independence. And there's also this idea that we are self-sufficient. You've heard the phrase, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's what we think here in America. We're to make our own way. We're to succeed completely by our own efforts. Here's a little sidebar related to the idea of how words and phrases get started. Interesting origin of words and phrases. The origin of this particular descriptive phrase pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, really isn't known. Of course, it refers to the idea, which is ridiculous if you think about it, that if you have bootstraps or laces and you can lift yourself up literally by that all by yourself. It's an impossible thing. It's supposed to exemplify the achievement in getting out of a difficult situation 
on your own initiative without anybody's help. It was known by the early 20th century. Uh, James Joyce alluded to it in Ulysses in 1922. And a more explicit use of the phrase came a little later in a book called British Authors of the 19th Century. That will show you how widely I read. No, actually, I found this information. Where it says, a poet who lifted himself by his own bootstraps from an obscure versifier to the ranks of real poetry. So we see the phrase used uh, just a little bit later than that. Now, here's the interesting part of the origin of this and what it's led to. Some early computers used a process called bootstrapping, which alludes to this phrase. This involved loading a small amount of code, which was then used to progressively load more complex code until the machine was ready for use. And this has led to the term booting for the startup of a computer. Did anybody else here know that? Some of you computer geeks probably did. They're, they're both, both computer geeks raise their hands. But, uh, yeah, all the computer geeks raise their hand. But the rest of us regular folks didn't know that. I thought that was kind of interesting. The reality is we all want control. We like to think we're in control. We like to think that we control our own destiny. But this is an illusion. And when you tell people that, especially in the context of what the Word of God clearly says that we need, at best, when you tell them this, It makes them think we're foolish, ignorant, and stupid. At worst, it makes them mad. So when it comes to saving our souls, the message of the cross says that we, you and I, are absolutely helpless. And that kind of statement makes it easy for some to dismiss us and for others to get upset with us. Charles Spurgeon pointed out in a sermon once that though true Christian faith brings peace, benevolence, and love, it's also true that the message of the cross is a source of conflict. It's a message that we're all sinners. There's no one righteous enough to earn his or her way into eternal life, and that the only cure for this sin sickness that we all have is the blood of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon noted that the offense of the cross perhaps lies most in the way that it deals with human wisdom. Strictly speaking, it's too simple. The message of the cross is too simple. It's so simple that it's offensive. The other thing it does is it paints us all with the same broad brush of sin. The cross strikes at our self-image. It strikes at our self-worth. It strikes at our pride. It strikes at our intellect. Here's what Spurgeon said in a sermon once. The cross will not recognize any distinctions between mankind. The cross makes moral and immoral persons go to heaven by the same road. The cross makes rich and poor enter heaven by the same door. The cross makes the philosopher and peasant walk on the same highway of holiness. Therefore, the wise man says, what? Am I to be saved by the same cross which saves a man who does not even know the alphabet? The very rich and sophisticated lady asks, am I to be saved in the same fashion as my servant girl? The gentleman says, am I to be saved by the same same way as the common laborer? And he who boasts of his self-righteousness cries, What? Am I to walk close to a prostitute to be side by side with a drunkard on the road to heaven? Then I won't go to heaven at all. And Spurgeon says, Then, sir, you will be lost. There are not two roads to heaven. It is the same road for everyone who goes there, and therefore the cross has always been offensive to men of wealth, knowledge, and power. Very few kings and queens have ever bent humbly before it. Recognizing this offense, 
and perhaps well-meaning at first, many have tried to undermine this offense. Many Christians, by not preaching the reality of and our need for the cross of Christ, that our absolute and utter need is for Jesus, the blood of Jesus, to take away our sins. So knowing that it's offensive to many people, and knowing that to many it will sound foolish, and perhaps even again being well-meaning, hoping to reach out to people with the love of Christ, the message of the cross is watered down in many segments of our church. One very popular TV preacher sells tickets to his national tour. He routinely sells 15 to 20,000 seat arenas. He sells them out. And he has a very positive message. And in this quote, he describes his own church. His own church is generally considered to be the largest church in the U.S. today. He says, it's not a churchy feel. We don't have crosses up there. We believe in all that. But I like to take the barriers down that have kept people from coming. A lot of people who come now are people that haven't been to church in 20 to 30 years. Singer and author Michael Card recognized this trend in America and even in the church. And he wrote this, particularly in American Christianity, the cross has become somewhat objectionable. Well-known pastors avoid referring to it in their sermons and on their TV programs because it is too negative. Some contend that it is somehow dysfunctional to feel that we owe something to someone who sacrifices anything much less himself, for us. They reason, can't that become manipulation? Wouldn't it be better to respond to God for our own reasons rather than because we owe him something? Other people are put off by the violence the cross portrays. Shouldn't we focus instead on the gentler side of the gospel? Now, let me tell you this. I have no problems with removing barriers to faith. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in uh, nine, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.22, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And then in Acts 15, talking to his fellow believers about Jewish rules and regulations and debating about what should be required of the Gentiles, the Apostle James said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So let me say this, there are legitimate strategies, there are legitimate plans to participate with the Holy Spirit in bringing people to Christ and in removing potential barriers that need not keep people away. In many cases, when this is done with the right intent, when this is done with the right focus, what we see is that there's really not anything wrong with these kinds of strategies. We can earn the right to be heard in people's lives by showing Christ's love, and we can do so in a winsome way in which we are not adding to the offense of the cross. You know what? The cross is offensive enough without our help. We don't need to help make it more offensive. We have to be careful by our words and our behavior to not add to that. But I also want to say there are some barriers that cannot be removed from our churches even for the sake of reaching people for Christ. Maybe especially for reaching people with the whole gospel. These real barriers, and I don't want to imply in any way that they aren't barriers in some way, but they're there for a vital purpose. Without this particular barrier of the cross of Christ, I don't believe we can fully understand the good news. Why is it good news? Why is it called Good Friday? Why are these things true? 
It's because of the cross of Christ. We can't remove this. There's an old adage which goes, what you win them with is what you win them to. And I think that if you win them with a gospel which requires you to remove the offense of the cross because you think it's a barrier to them coming, I really wonder if you're actually winning them to the same Jesus that the Bible reveals to us. I really have to ask that question. The Jesus that we're worshiping here this morning, the Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now if Jesus endured the cross knowing that joy and glory awaited him, yet knowing that the cross and only the cross was the painful, terrible path that he had to walk to that glory, then why should we think that the cross is an insurmountable barrier to bringing people to Christ or bringing people to church, for that matter? Would we say to our children, for example, well, even though this vaccination is going to hurt, even though we know it'll accomplish something good in you, we're going to remove this barrier because we know it's going to hurt, we know it's going to be difficult, it's hard, it's painful. Of course not. We know it's what they need. I'd submit to you today that we cannot take down the barrier of the cross. The most disturbing thing about this preacher that I mentioned a moment ago, the one who doesn't have crosses up anywhere in his church, is not so much that there's no cross to be seen in his church building, but more so there's no cross in his preaching. Yes, we can stipulate to the fact that the cross is, in fact, offensive. It is. But it's also the way to salvation. The whole message of the cross is offensive to our natural minds. The whole idea that it takes the death of God incarnate to save our souls is a barrier to many, many people. But if we water down this barrier, or if we try to remove it to make it easier for people to step over and maybe make it easier for them to ignore, it's easier to not fully consider the cost. We're watering down the gospel message, which includes the fact that Jesus must and did, in fact, die on the cross. Now, the word called this barrier a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, In some passages, it's the same word from which we get the English word scandal. It's a scandal. In Matthew 11, 16, Jesus himself said, Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And then in Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is quoting Isaiah. And even Isaiah saw prophetically, quoted here in Romans, hundreds of years before Jesus actually took up his cross, that the way God chose to bring salvation to men would indeed be a barrier. He knew that it would be a stumbling stone, that it would be offensive. And that barrier, that stumbling stone, is Jesus. We read again from the passage in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.18, which we read a moment ago, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So for us to take away that barrier of the cross, even though it may be well-intentioned, is to water down, to diminish the vital, the critical importance of the cross in our faith. 
It ignores how critical it is in God's plan of salvation and in our walk of faith. And as much as our culture, as much as we might try, as much as we might attempt to remove it as a barrier, as much as the world might like to make it into only a symbol and rob it of its eternal meaning, we cannot diminish the importance of the cross unless we embrace that barrier. Just as Jesus embraced his destiny on the cross, I don't believe we can come into and walk in the kingdom of God. I don't believe we can live lives of sacrificial service to the king unless we consider the offense of the cross. And consider implies that we think about it, doesn't it? We mull it over. We meditate on its meaning. And unless we realize, as the song we sometimes sing says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. I wonder if we can really live lives as Christ followers. If we don't consider the cost, then it says to me that we must think we don't need that awful price to be paid, or at least not for us. If we don't think the price needs to be paid, how can we accept Jesus' gift of eternal life to us? The cross is what it took to save us. To remove the cross for the sake of removing barriers to the gospel is not preaching the whole gospel. The cross isn't a symbol. It's much more than a symbol. Not only should we not remove the cross from all our churches, but I think we should embrace all that it means, all that it means in our lives, all that it means in history, all that it means in eternity. The cross is the reason we're here this morning. We're Christians saved by the blood of Jesus shed on that cross. It's important, and it's not important just on Good Friday or just during Holy Week when we traditionally remember the cross, but always, not just once a year, but daily. We're about halfway now between last year's Easter week and next year's, but this is too important for us to remember only one week out of the year. And not just to remember, but to ponder, to consider, to think about Jesus suffering for us, his horrible, painful death to purchase our salvation with his blood. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, we see this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Here we have an admonition first to fix our eyes on Jesus who endured the cross. And then we are admonished to consider him, to think about him. Jesus who endured. So we see in the span of these couple of verses that we're to focus on him, we're to consider or think about or ponder Jesus who endured the cross. But you know what? Even if we haven't watered it down in terms of importance, I still wonder if it's sometimes not central enough to our thinking and to our faith. After all, when it comes to our faith, the cross is the crux of the matter, isn't it? Did you know that for almost 400 years, 
The early Christian church never depicted Jesus on the cross. Some of the research I did says that the first known depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus that came from the Christian community wasn't carved until A.D. 420. That was 387 years after the crucifixion. From early Christian art, from the catacombs, for example, you see inscriptions, you see menorahs, you see anchors, and you also see the then secret but now familiar, what we see on our bumper stickers, the ichthys, the fish, right? You see all that in early Christian art, but no cross. Why is that? Well, we can only guess, we can only speculate. Were early Christians embarrassed by the cross? I think not. The fact that so many of them died for their faith makes this seem rather improbable to me. Perhaps it was still too real and too brutal for them to ponder in a way that they could make art of it. Still too personal. How many paintings have you seen of electric chairs? Some of those early Christian martyrs died on crosses, much like Jesus did. Some probably had fresh memories of friends or family or acquaintances hanging from a cross, dying a horrible death. So for us, it's history, and it's 2,000-year-old history. But for them, it was a part of their lives. It was very close. It was very real. It was very personal. Michael Card wrote, for a, very, a set of very different reasons, the cross seems to have disappeared from Christian art and music in our own time. Worse, it has disappeared from many hearts and minds as well. Fewer and fewer of the churches I visit have crosses hanging behind or in front of the pulpit. Fewer songs sing of it. Fewer sermons celebrate it. Why didn't they, the early Christians, utilize the symbol of the cross? My guess is that they shied away from representing the cross uh, because it meant too much, not because it means too little, as it does today. The cross is not a symbol. It is the center of the universe, the nexus of history, the most meaningful event that ever took place. So for 400 years, you never saw a cross in a Christian gathering place. If we keep heading the way we're headed now, you may not see crosses in many churches of our time either, but it'll be for a different reason. And while for the early Christians, it may well have been too graphic, too personal, hitting a little bit too close to home for them, I think for this era of Christians, we need to see the cross. We need to see the cross. We need to see it. We need to think about it. We need to ponder it. Because for many, if not for most of us, it's not too personal. It's not personal enough. It's not close to home at all. So we're in a completely different place than the early Christians. While they spoke of it and wrote about it, They didn't depict it like we do because it was still very real to them. They didn't need to see the cross like I think we do. In Luke 9.23, it reads, Then he said to them, Jesus, we're speaking of here, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, how can we understand what this verse might mean to us as individuals if we never think about what it meant to him? When we commit to become followers of Jesus, we commit to become crucified followers of Jesus. John Piper wrote, The reason for this is not that Jesus must die again, but that we must. When he bids us take up our cross, he means come and die. 
the cross was a place of horrible execution. It would have been unthinkable in Jesus' day to wear a cross as a piece of jewelry. It would have been like wearing a miniature electric chair or lynching rope. There we see that idea again. His words must have had a terrifying effect. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So as much as the world has tried to diminish the cross to just a symbol, to a simple piece of jewelry, it can't be done. But we can reduce its importance again if we do not choose to remember. And that's our choice. We must choose to remember the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and why we needed that. That's one of the things we're to ponder every week. You know, we do communion here every week. This is to remind us. Jesus said, do this in memory of me. Just of him? No. Why is there the bread and the wine? Why is there the body and the blood? It's to remind us of what Jesus suffered. We're to do this regularly. I also kind of like the, uh, the idea that we have crosses here in our church. I like the idea that this pulpit is held up by a cross. That might say kind of subliminally that the cross is the focal point of our preaching. Amen? One of the things we're to ponder when we share communion each week, if we think of these things and we ponder these things and we consider these things, we consider Jesus, we fix our eyes on him, they are sobering words. They mean that when I follow Jesus, my old self-determining, self-absorbed me must be crucified. My old self must be put to death. I must consider myself dead to sin and alive to God because this is the path of life. Just as Jesus took the road to Golgotha, making it the path of life to us, if we're to maintain a truly biblical understanding of our faith in this era when everything else around us seems to diminish and try to reduce this understanding, we must refocus regularly, regularly our attention on the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of grace and the cross, how could something become cheap which costs God everything? We must live the cross in our daily lives. The cross of Jesus is now and will forever be the center of our faith. It's the source of his unlimited grace for us. When it comes to our lives as followers of Christ, it's the crux of the matter. Let's let Paul's words in Galatians 6 be a part of our closing prayer here this morning. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Dear Heavenly Father, that is indeed our prayer this morning. May we boast in nothing other than the cross. And boasting in the cross means that we are boasting in your accomplishment for us. We are recognizing that we can do nothing. That's what the cross tells us. We can do nothing. Our wisdom amounts to nothing. Our efforts amount to nothing. But your cross means everything. It is the crux of the matter. Help us to remember this, Lord God. May your Holy Spirit illuminate your word to us. Father, may the cross be the focal point of our daily existence as we remember your sacrifice for us, as we remember our great need for the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Amen.